0: Proverbs 3, 1 to 10, which is by way of review, as we're working our way through the book of Proverbs and the sermon series, there's really kind of two parts to this series that we're looking at, and each part is driven by a specific question. So part one, which we're currently in, we're kind of looking at Proverbs chapter one to nine, and it's driven by the question, what are the foundations and pillars upon which we build a life of wisdom? So looking at kind of the, the underlying structure upon which we build a life of wisdom. And then in part two, which we'll come to later, we're going to pick some themes and trace them through Proverbs 10 to 31. We'll ask him the question, what are the principles and practices for living a life of wisdom? So we're going to build a life of wisdom. And then on that foundation, we want to live a life of wisdom. So right now, we're in the construction phase. Okay, We're, we're under construction and we're building a life of wisdom. And the, the picture I have in my mind of how this looks is like, think of maybe the Library of Congress in, in D.C., which is kind of framed after Roman colonnades. And in that structure, um, there were these massive stone buildings that as you kind of look at them and approach them, there have these steps leading up to this arch that has all these strong uh, colonnades and pillars and structures lining it that are kind of bearing the weight of the structural integrity of the building. But let's not forget, anytime you see a building with all those structures, Underneath it is the most important thing. There's a foundation that, that upholds even the building itself. And so it's this combination of a solid foundation and strong pillars that made Roman architecture so impressive, so durable, so long-lasting. Well, likewise, for building a life of wisdom. So what we've looked at so far in the construction process is in Proverbs 1, 1 to 7, we learn that a life of wisdom starts with building on the foundation of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the fundamental foundation for a life of wisdom, that, that reverence and awe of God, which sees him as supreme, which places him at the center of everything and honors him as the source and fountain of all wisdom. In other words, a life of wisdom is built on the foundation of right worship, a right relationship to God. Well, then in Proverbs 1, 8 to 19, we said that one of the pillars, one of the support beams of a life of wisdom is right Influences. Everyone has influences in their life, people that influence them one direction or another. Well, a life of wisdom is supported by looking to wise counselors and guarding ourselves from following the counsel of fools. Well, then in Proverbs 2, we added another pillar to support the building of wisdom. A life of wisdom is supported by having right values and priorities. Wisdom, as we're told in Proverbs 2, is more valuable than any earthly treasure. Therefore, seek wisdom as a treasure hunter seeks after hidden treasure. Seek wisdom as your highest priority. Now in Proverbs 3, we're going to add a third pillar. A life of wisdom is supported and upheld by right dependence and right reliance. Life of wisdom is upheld by the support of an all-encompassing dependence on the Lord and him Alone. So let's turn to Proverbs 3, 1 to 12, and let's read there as we begin to dig into this text. So Proverbs 3, 1 to 10. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, and so you will find favor and good success. In the sight of God and man, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats. Will be bursting with wine. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of this word. Heavenly Father, as we come to hear your word, Lord, open our ears so that they are attentive to your wisdom. Lord, show us wonderful things in your wise words so that we might gain a heart of wisdom for living in your world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this third support beam that we're adding to the structure of the building of wisdom is that a life of wisdom is supported and upheld by a self-renouncing, all-encompassing dependence on the Lord. Or to state it more simply, a life of wisdom is marked by constantly consulting our maker and his manual that he has written. And now when I say that, you probably think of manuals that you know of for complex things that you have in your life. And we've all witnessed and it perhaps even experienced firsthand the consequences that can result from neglecting to consult a manual or using something in a way that it was never designed to be used for. So a couple of examples I can think of on social media, I saw this video where uh, a young lady had borrowed her dad's car and she came home to report to her dad that something is wrong with his gas nozzle. It, it's too small. It doesn't fit. And she, she tried to fill it up with the gassing and it wouldn't fit in, so she just had to pour it in and keep the hole open. And the dad asked, what color was the gas nozzle that you used? She said, well, it was green. And the dad said, it's not a diesel vehicle. You filled my car with And he runs out to the, to the driveway to check out the car. Now, I don't know if that was true or not, if they were playing a prank, but uh, she should have consulted the manual. Uh, as, as a young lad, I remember uh, Easy Mac was a big thing in my day. It was even easier than macaroni cheese that you put on a stove. In fact, you take the macaroni noodles, you pour it in a bowl, and the instructions, is if you follow them, you're supposed to add three cups of water. Well, I didn't follow the instructions. I just poured the noodles in the bowl, put it in the microwave for three minutes, and then went outside to play basketball. My sister came running out to the driveway to say, Andrew, Andrew, the microwave is on fire. It's smoke, and then opens the door. Smoke is billowing out of the microwave, out of the door, because when you microwave noodles without water for three minutes, they do, they do burn, OK? <laughs> and it, it's funny. Easy Mac is literally named Easy Mac for a reason. There's, there's three instructions, OK? And I missed one of them. Or perhaps you've, you've gone to Ikea or a place similar to that. You get kind of build, build it yourself in furniture. You get the furniture, comes in all the pieces, comes in a box, pretty compactly you know, packaged, and you have to build it yourself. And you set out thinking, this is simple. You know, anyone could do this. Who needs the instructions? And then you, you, you think you've finished, or you do what you think is a finished job, and you realize, I have six screws left over, <laughs> three you know, bolts left over, and, and I realize now that the middle piece is upside down and backwards. And you look at the instructions, which you should have started looking at, and you realize, you know I, I, I need to start over. And so you take it apart, and then you follow the instructions. Or perhaps you've had your own microwave incidents, where you take uh, some form of liquid, maybe coffee in a metal cup, and you don't realize that on the bottom of the cup it says, not microwave safe. Or perhaps you put some some you know soup in the microwave and you leave the, the metal spoon in the bowl. And you, you start microwaving, and all of a sudden, a 4th of July fireworks show gone wrong is going off in your microwave. You, microwaves really need instructions for a reason, guys, OK? <laughs> all right? So the reason that complex machines like, like cars or different appliances, come with you know, thick, detailed manuals is because the average owner, okay, that, that's, that's you and I mostly, lack the knowledge and expertise to be able to manage and operate it on our own without any sort of counsel and instruction. So without that manual that's written by those who made the vehicle that you drive, how would we know where to find the blinker fluid and replace it, okay? <laughs> don't get it then you're part of the problem okay (laughs) the reason that products that you use on a daily basis come with different warnings on them is because someone somewhere has a story about how they use that product in a way it was never designed to be used and now the company needs to save itself from litigation and does not want you to use it in a way that it was never intended to be used in a similar way this is God's purpose in giving us the book of Proverbs The maker of heaven and earth, the one who has infinitely, wisely designed his world, and the maker of you and me, who has fearfully and wonderfully made us in his image, has given us a manual for how to live wisely in his world. So one of the support beams of a life of wisdom that we need to build a life of wisdom on is we need a self-renouncing, all-encompassing dependence on our maker, and his manual. Now the heart of this lesson is laid out for us in the middle of our passage. We're going to start with the middle and then we're going to go to the beginning and the end of it. Heart of this lesson is in Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. This is Perhaps if you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, it is the most famous, most well-known passage in the whole book of Proverbs. And it is that way for very good reasons. If you had to if you had to kind of crystallize the message of the book of Proverbs, consolidate it into a crisp, clear summary, you could do no better than to quote Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. This is the thesis. This is the summary. This is the essence of the book of Proverbs. So think of Proverbs 3, 5 to 7 as the acorn of the whole book of Proverbs. And the oak tree of everything that comes after and out of the book of Proverbs, it all grows out of this acorn of truth. Everything that Proverbs has to say about, everything it has to say something about, comes from this right here. The counsel in these verses, and the way it's kind of stated to us by Psalm, by the father to the son, is is kind of a bit like a battery. So you look at a battery, you know there's a negative side, positive side, negative charge, Positive charge. So, this counsel is given to us negatively and positively so that we might get the message by seeing both aspects of it. So, the negative side is captured by the opening phrase of verse 7. Look there. Be not wise in your own eyes. Now, this same phrase will show up in other parts of Proverbs, most notably Proverbs 26 12, where it says, even more starkly and clearly, Do you see a person? who is wise in their own eyes, same phrase, there is more hope for a fool than for them. So what Proverbs saying is that there's categories of those who ignore or reject God's wisdom. And the lowest part of the totem pole, those who reject and ignore God's wisdom, is not a fool. It's actually someone who is wise in their own eyes. A person who is wise in their own eyes is someone who has an inflated view of their own wisdom, and is so impressed with that inflated view that they are characterized by the following things. Now, as I read these following things, we need to do uh, the Cinderella thing. We need to see if the shoe fits us as well. Remember, when we hear the word, we're fundamentally not hearing it for other people. Oh, I wish they were here, or I really hope he's hearing this. We fundamentally need to hear it as to us, first and foremost. And I see spouses reminding each other of that as I say that. (laughs) Here's how the wise in their own eyes is characterized. They rarely, if ever, seek or even welcome the counsel of others. They rarely, if ever, stop and pause to think about what God thinks about this or that matter, or this or that area of life. When there's tension between their thoughts and God's thoughts on something or some matter, they resolve the tension by going with their thoughts. They frequently rush to make a judgment or frequently rush to share their opinion on a matter when they clearly have insufficient facts and insufficient information. And everyone knows that except them. They have a stubborn unwillingness or laziness when it comes to hearing and weighing carefully both sides of a matter. And others would define those who are wise in their own eyes with the life motto of often wrong, but never in doubt. Now, if we're being honest, we shall realize that the picture I just painted of someone who is wise in their own eyes is more often than we'd like to admit a bit of a self-portrait. The greatest enemy of a life of wisdom is sadly the thing that stares at you in the mirror every morning when you get up. What Proverbs says is foolishness is native to us. It is easy, instinctive for us to be wise in our own eyes. So one of the ways that Proverbs kind of confronts us and corrects us is when you look in the mirror every day, when it comes to the greatest obstacle to wisdom, public enemy number one of wisdom, you're you're looking right at it. Because foolishness is native to us and wisdom is a foreign language. It's something we have to learn and struggle for and strive for. We are very naturally gifted at pride, the greatest obstacle to wisdom, the greatest then antidote being overly impressed with overly inflated views of ourself is then a self-renouncing dependence on the Lord. Now, by by self-renouncing, I have to be careful what I mean. I do not mean to say that every day you wake up and stare in the mirror at public enemy number one to the obstacle of wisdom. You should recite daily negative affirmations to yourself. You're a moron. You're ugly. Nobody likes you, okay? This is not an an inverse Stuart Smalley of the uh, Saturday Night Live fame. That's not what I'm saying. As true as that may be, it's not helpful, okay? By self-renouncing, I do mean that we need to every day properly deflate our ego by reciting some humbling affirmations about God in comparison to us. That's what I mean by self-renouncing. So we need to remind ourselves he is the potter, I am the clay. His understanding is infinite, mine is finite. He is in need of nothing and dependent on no one. I need the life and breath and everything else that he supplies. His power is inexhaustible, mine is easily exhausted. His patience is unlimited, mine is often very limited. A person who is full of themselves cannot be filled with God's wisdom. There is no room in the inn for God's wisdom. But the more we are emptied of self or ego or pride, whatever term you want to give for it, the more we will then be filled with God's wisdom. That's the pattern that Proverbs gives. The more we are filled with pride, the more foolish we will be. The more we are emptied of pride and humble before the Lord, the more we will be filled with wisdom. That's how it works. The the other side of this counsel, though, is the positive side. And it's stated in the opening phrases of verse five and six, where he says there, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Verse five, and then jump down to verse six, in all your ways, acknowledge him. So the key word is the repeated word in those two phrases, all. A life of wisdom is built upon an all-encompassing dependence on the Lord. All-encompassing, meaning, the entirety of our being, the exclusive loyalty of our affections, and our exhaustive dependence must be on the Lord. All of me in all of life placing all my reliance on the Lord. That's what wisdom is calling us to. And it's calling us to this because everyone is leaning on something. Everyone is leaning on something to give them support and to keep them upright in life. And what wisdom is saying, is that only the Lord, who's infinite in wisdom, inexhaustible in power, has infinite resources, has the load-bearing capacity to hold us up in all that we have to face in life. Every other support that we might be tempted to lean on, especially our own understanding, will break and fail at some point due to the weight and pressure of life. It cannot bear up under it. Only the Lord has the load-bearing capacity to hold us up in life. So think about it. When when the ground of life gets gets a bit shaky for you, or when you're traveling through life and you you hit some turbulence, what do you reach for to support you and stabilize you? If it's something other than the Lord, or even something in addition to the Lord, Solomon is saying, I have tested the load-bearing capacity of everything you can think of in this life. And let me tell you, it does not hold up when it comes to it. Only the Lord is a never failing support. Lean on the Lord. Lean on him, all of you and all of life, all on him. So life of wisdom is built upon the support of a self-renouncing, all-encompassing dependence on the Lord. Now let's unpack that further by asking a question. What does that look like? It sounds nice. It's, it's, I understand a little bit, but what does that look like? Now this is where the rest of our passage comes into play because verses one to four, and verses nine and 10, and even 11 and 12, which we'll look at later, they come into focus because each of these sections, the father's giving some counsel to his son, some admonition, some incentive and reward, and each of these is illustrating and unpacking what it looks like to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So look at verse one. What does dependence on the Lord look like? Verse one, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Remember that the framework that Proverbs is written in is it's as if we're sitting in an Israelite living room overhearing a father and a mother teach their son to prepare them for all that life is gonna bring towards them so that they're ready to face it. And one of the ways that a life of dependence looks like is it looks like guarding ourselves, guarding our hearts with God's commandments. So this, this word keep, keep my commandments, is a military term that refers to a guard or watchman that was placed at the entrance of a fortress or castle or some sort of entrance to keep watch so that no intruders, no enemies get in. And so through this counsel of wisdom, what what the father is saying to the son is, be as alert and attentive and vigilant to keep watch over God's word as a watchman and a guard is at his post in the middle of the night when he knows enemies and intruders are afoot. If we guard God's commands with that sort of vigilance and diligence, what happens is that they will in turn guard us and watch over us. It's kind of this, this two-way street. So we, we guard them with an attentiveness and a vigilance, and they in turn serve as the kind of security system for our heart in that they protect us by making us wise, making us attentive, making us discerning to all the enemies and intruders in this world that seek to kind of break through our security system every single day. And to be wise in our own eyes would be to neglect or ignore God's commands, which would leave the castle of your heart unguarded and defenseless. So guard your heart according to God's commands. Now jump down to verse three. In verse three, this is the counsel given. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So why does he refer to these twin characteristics of steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, these were the two terms that captured the heart and essence of God's character in the mind of an Israelite. So for example, in Exodus 34, Moses makes that great petition, Lord, show me your glory. I I, want to see like no one else has seen. And then the Lord passes by. And as he passes by, he preaches as it were a sermon. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. So the, the, the time that those two terms are paired together throughout the scripture, it's always in reference to this is our God. This is what he's like. This is his character. So by referencing these characteristics of God, wisdom is asking us to consider whose conduct and way of life do you most look up to and most want to imitate? What character qualities do you want to most define who you are? Or to ask it in a different way. What character qualities would others say most define you? And the reason this is important and why this relates to wisdom is when we look around in this world, there are all sorts of examples and qualities and characteristics that the world places and placards before us saying, follow this example. Value these qualities. This is the character that will get you ahead in life. And social media is a perfect example of a place that does that. I remember recently... Um, and a lot of people are asking these days you know, what does femininity look like what does masculinity look like and there are a lot of bad examples out there so, so to be specific with one I was there's this social media personality his name's Andrew Tate you may or may not have heard of that name and what he is he is a huge influence on young men in that people look to him and say oh here's a macho guy here's a braggadocious in your face kind of guy who's, he's got everything I want. and a lot of people look at him and say that's the example I want and the scripture is saying no the example you want to follow is the Lord. As beloved children, imitate your heavenly Father. Look at his character, trace his ways. Think about kids when you when you're learning to draw. How do you do it? Maybe maybe you're like my kids and there's that YouTube channel uh, Art for Kids Hub and you watch a professional artist who does all these sketches and you you just trace what he's saying or maybe you look at a picture right next to you and it's beautifully done and you're just slowly but surely copying it. That's how we should be in life when it comes to imitating God's character. He is the artist who has the perfect model and we want to trace our character according to his lines and his ways. That's how we want to live our life. Wisdom is saying, don't don't look around, for your example, as it were. Look up. Behold the beauty and glory of God's character. And as beloved children, imitate that, trace that in your character. A life lived in dependence on the Lord looks like conforming to his character. Now jump down with me to verse 9. This is, I think, Proverbs has a lot to say about the area of, of money, wealth, resources. This is the first thing it says, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. As I said, Proverbs has a ton to say about money, and I think the reason for that is, and even Jesus, he says more about money than I think any other person in Scripture, is because the biggest test of our dependence on the Lord is how we view and handle our money and wealth and material resources. That is kind of the test. That is the, the testing and proving ground of how do you depend on the Lord? When you look at the house over your head, the positive numbers in your financial portfolio, the well-stocked pantry in your kitchen, do you look at them and think, my, you have really done well for yourself? Or do you look at it and say, you know, it's not quite enough, just a little bit more, and then I'll be content. Then I'll have enough. Or you look at them and think, God has been very good to me. Look at all these tangible blessings that he has provided me with. I do not deserve all of this. The wise who live in dependence on the Lord view everything they have as ultimately as a gift that has come from God's hand. It's not ours fundamentally, it was his and he gave it to us. But we must go a step further and ask, well then how do you handle all that you have? Do you handle God's material gifts as if God blessed you so that you can bless yourself? Do you uh, treat yourself lifestyle? Or do you handle God's gifts with the conviction that God blessed you so that you can be a blessing to others? Which direction is your stuff, the gifts that God gives you fundamentally going? Is going inward or outward? And when you give or share what you have, if you do it all, do you do so reluctantly and begrudgingly and stingily thinking, do I really want to part with my precious stuff? You know, I perhaps a tax write-off is worth it, but I can't see another reason why it might be worth it. Or do you give joyfully, and cheerfully knowing that you're only giving back to God what was his in the first place and that he who gave it to you in the first place can richly supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. A life of wisdom lived in dependence on the Lord looks like honoring the giver by being generous with his gifts. Well then, notice with each of the pieces of counsel we've looked at, I skipped a verse. I did that intentionally because I want to deal with it here. When the father gives this wise counsel to his son, he follows it up with all these various kind of incentivizing rewards underneath the counsel. So look at verse 2, what it says. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Then jump down to verse 4. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And then jump down to verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats. Will be bursting with wine. So, what are we to make of such grand offers? Is God offering us the perfect, foolproof investment opportunity? If if we just follow these four steps that I have listed for you, then He will automatically make you healthy, wealthy, and happy. Is that the investment opportunity I'm giving you today? That is most certainly not the investment opportunity I am giving you today. We should not view these mechanically and automatically as if God is, rather than a person to be loved, a resource to be invested in. That's not how we're to view the Lord. If you're tempted to believe that, I suggest that you look at the book of Job, that you look at the life of Christ, that you look at the life of any apostle and any believer in the early church. You will see that there are exceptions to these norms. Proverbs is not promoting any of the garbage known as the prosperity gospel. That's not what Proverbs is promoting. What is it saying, though? The main overarching point that these reward statements are making is this. A life lived in dependence on the Lord looks like following his ways because we believe that they ultimately reap the best rewards. A life lived in dependence on the Lord looks like I'm going to stay on his paths and follow his ways because I believe that they ultimately reap the best rewards in the end. When the world says, go this way and, and you'll get this, The wise person says, no, no, I'm going to stick with the Lord's ways because they're the best ways and they always lead to the best ends. And here's another way we have to understand these proverbs. We cannot confuse proverbs with promises. There's some overlap, but they're not synonymous. Proverbs and promises are not the exact same thing. Proverbs are general statements about how things generally go in God's world. They're not exclusively, exhaustively true, but they are typically and generally true. So think about it like this. Proverbs are, they're very compact, concise statements of wisdom that don't say everything that can be said. Right? They, they say something and it's true, but it's not everything that can be said about that thing. They speak of the rules, they speak of the norms, they speak of the ideals, but we must read the rest of the Bible to understand the exceptions and the nuances to what's being said in Proverbs. And so one of the principles that these reward statements operate on is that God has designed the world not only with laws of nature, like gravity. You know, if you if you jump from the roof of your house, you're gonna fall and hurt yourself. That's that's gravity at work. It's a law that you cannot ignore. God has also designed the world with laws of spiritual nature, like what one sows, that will they also reap. Paul mentions in Galatians six. It's a law of spiritual nature. Your conduct has consequences. There is an intricate relationship between how one acts and the consequences that will follow for good or for ill. If we sow in wisdom, we will generally speaking reap the blessings of wisdom in our life. If we reject wisdom and sow in folly, we will reap the curses of foolishness. So think about this in relation to the area of money that we just discussed. If we approach money as if we're wise in our own eyes, we reject God's counsel and and go our own way, so we handle money impulsively rather than thoughtfully. If we work harder to spend it than we do to earn it, we accumulate debt rather than adding to our savings. If we hold on to it with a tight fist rather than an open hand, what's going to happen? Should we expect that, Proverbs 3.10, our vats will be full and our barns will be bursting with grain? No, we should expect that when you go against the grain of God's design for the universe, life has a way of giving you splinters, Right? That's how we should think about wisdom. God has designed the world and the grain goes a certain way. When you go against it, life has a way of giving you splinters. But flip that around. When we lean not on our own understanding, but we honor our maker, follow his manual, in all of our financial stewardship, money management, going with the grain of God's design for the world, generally, typically, life has a way of being much smoother, much sweeter. Things go much better for us when we follow God's design. So, a life lived in dependence on the Lord says, I want to sow according to his ways because I know that in the end, ultimately, they will reap the best rewards. That's how we're to understand this counsel. Now, in all the wise counsel that Proverbs offers us, in its summons to a self renouncing, all encompassing dependence on the Lord, we must come to terms with something. God's standards and ideals of wisdom, as we read them here, are something we fall very short of meeting, and f- when we do not follow as faithfully as we should. If we're honest, our ears have not been as open and attentive to our Father's counsel as they should be. More often than not, they're hard of hearing or closed altogether. Our will is so prone to leaning on our own understanding, trusting in what we know and think. Our hearts have often been too careless in guarding them according to God's commandments. All the wisdom that we're overhearing this father give to his son should cause us to ask the question, who has measured up to such standards? Who is the truly wise son who has faithfully listened to his father? And the answer to that question is not you or me, it's Jesus, the true and faithful wise son of God. Think about, in Jesus' public ministry, what astonished people was his wisdom. As he went about his public ministry, the crowds were mesmerized that he spoke with such wisdom and authority. And the religious leaders were mystified by his wisdom, and they could not answer him back. He shut their mouths with his wisdom. And then in the midst of his ministry, he makes this bold declaration. He says, someone greater than Solomon is here. When Jesus was thinking about himself and his identity, who he was, and declaring it to the people, he takes who in their mind was the wisest person that they had ever known, the one who shared wisdom, who embodied wisdom in their mind, Solomon, and he says to them, someone greater than Solomon is here. In that declaration, Jesus was saying, all the wisdom that Solomon demonstrated, imperfectly, and even ultimately unfaithfully, Jesus is saying, I embody perfectly, fully, and faithfully. And we see it in his life. No one's ear has been open to a father's counsel like Jesus was to his own father. He listened attentively to every word that he lived by the phrase that he quoted in the wilderness in the temptation, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I do not do my own will but the will of my father who sent me. No one's heart was kept guarded as vigilantly by his father's commands as Jesus was. When he's in the wilderness, Being tempted by the serpent, what does he say? He goes to his father's word over and over and over again because it was written on his heart and it was guarding his heart. And no one's will was as all-encompassingly yielded to his father's wisdom as Jesus' was. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the ultimate demonstration of it, not my will, father, but yours be done. As much as Proverbs is painting a picture of the wise life for us, it is also painting a picture of the true wise and faithful son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His faithful wisdom is the only covering for our faithlessness and foolishness. And the wisest thing that one can ever do is look to Christ to be our wisdom and to make us wise. That is the wisest thing. Let's pray.